Yes, thank you, Jim. And uh, we will be having a little bit of a um, conference highlight next Sunday, and it was a great conference, and I hope you'll come and hear all the things that God is doing. It is uh, always a joy to get together with longtime friends, and that certainly is true for me personally this morning. Uh, I've known uh, Pastor Larry and his wife Nancy for many, many years. Um, a while back, Nancy was actually my accompanist at the uh, Hagerstown Grace Brethren Church when I was directing the choir, and Rhoda was a lot younger then. <laughs> <laughs> she was just a little tyke. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier about, um, Eric, about Larry's dad baptizing you and so forth. Isn't it truly amazing how God weaves lives together? And sometimes we're together for a long time, maybe a whole lifetime. Other people sort of come into our lives and then they're there for a while and they go out and maybe they come back. But however God works all of that out, it's always amazing, and it's always for our good and for His glory. And I am delighted that Pastor Larry is going to be able to come and share with us this morning. Uh, he followed me when I was at Waynesboro Grace, and he was there for a number of years and um, has been involved in ministry, has been involved in the business world, and so he kind of has a perspective from varying vantage points about the importance and the value and the, the truth of the Word of God. So, Brother Larry, you come on up here. I want to pray for you, and then uh, you open that word to us this morning. Okay. Good to have you here. Thank you. Thank Let's you. pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for my brother, and I pray that you will just fill his heart and mind with yourself and with your word, and Father, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you for how you are working in all of our lives and throughout our lifetimes. Lord, may you receive all the glory and all the praise, and we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Thank you, Brother Roger. I won't go into all those rabbit trails that you mentioned, because <laughs> that may take more than time than you're willing to give this morning. But I feel already like I'm at home here. We've been back several times, and the late Brother Martin was one of my dear friends, and of course his son is part of our church in Waynesboro, Grace Church, and uh, that, that's just a, a great fellowship that we've had together. And uh, I knew Roger's father-in-law, and I won't tell you what he said about you. <laughs> he and I were in high school together back in those days when my dad baptized Eric. <laughs> I'd like to share some history with you this morning as introduction to what I think the Lord's led me to say. You'll recognize the name John Adams. Well, he wrote a letter to his wife, Abigail, dated July 3rd, 1776. And he predicted in that letter, in his now archaic style, I'd like to read, quote, the second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. 
It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade with shows, spelled with an E, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward and forevermore. Well, his prediction about July 2nd was based upon the decision of the Second Continental Congress of the United States, which was eventually signed by John Hancock in August of 1776 and 56 other delegates to the Congre Congregational, I'm sorry, the Continental Congress. There were enough preachers there to make it a congregation. But the Declaration of Independence adopted two days after that, on July 4, is the day on which we celebrate, if not solemnize, our independence. You know the phrases of the historic document, the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it concludes, quote, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our honor, and our sacred fortunes. That was not a light commitment. All but one of the signers of the Declaration died in some manner of death due to the Revolutionary War. This republic stands as a singular expression of human freedom on Earth. And four days from today, tomorrow that is, we will celebrate this is a Latin word, which is the title of what we celebrate in just four years, the Sester Centennial of the United States. We've already had the Bicentennial and the Centennial and the Sesquicentennial. Now this is the Sester Centennial. More words from the Declaration. Reliance upon creator, God, divine providence, an appeal to the supreme judge of the world. It's undeniable that the influence of Christianity was in the drafting of our foundational documents. In God we trust is engraved on our coins, printed on our paper currency, and carved in stone. <clears throat> and every high official and low official, including the President and Vice President of the United States, conclude their oath of office, so help me God. A little bit of that ancient history, I remember when citizenship was a graded subject, quote unquote, in public school. 
It was also known as conduct. And a preacher's kid never acts right. And I didn't get good grades in conduct. They said I talked too much. Well, in those days, Bible reading, prayer, and the Pledge of Allegiance were all daily recitations. And we may lament the loss of those exercises. And it's perhaps because of that that our national unity and coarsened culture has evolved. So with full acknowledgement of those roots of America, is this country a Christian nation? I'd like to think about that question for a moment. What's the relationship between citizenship and loyalty to Christ? We've sung of that this morning. Lead on, O King Eternal. Simply invoking God publicly, however, cannot reflect one's heart surrender to Jesus Christ, who gave his life for our redemption. My highest allegiance as a believer is to Jesus Christ. We sang King of Kings, Lord of Lords, in whom all power in heaven and earth is given. A book by Gregory Boyd, copyrighted in 2006, titled The Myth of a Christian Nation, proclaims that the surpassing greatness in the kingdom of God, defined by sacrifice and service, represents a power under model, which stands in stark contrast to the power over model of earthly man-made government. Now, if you think about it, these are searching questions that have been debated certainly since Constantine made Christianity the official religion of his ancient nation. And it still rages after 246 years of our national history. But that's the extent of my book report. If you want to read it, you'll have to buy it. But can we be both soldiers of the cross and simultaneously pledge allegiance to an earthly kingdom? We exercise all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities of citizenship, but we're also sojourners. And I'd like to look at some scripture this morning that speaks to that. Open your Bible to 1 Peter if you have one handy. 1 Peter, remember that Jesus admonished him, put your sword back in its sheath, and then healed the ear of the servant of the high priest that Peter had cut off. So follow with me as I begin to read several verses from God's Word, other chapters and other books as well. But for context, 1 Peter 
chapter 1, believers are called holy, born again, and ransomed by the precious blood of Christ by faith and hope in God. In chapter 2, there are some different metaphors which aid our understanding and relationship to God and to each other. In verse 2, chapter 2, he likens us to newborn infants. And in verse 4, living stones. Verse 5, a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Those are all very different indications. Now I'd like to read, beginning in verse 9, from the English Standard Version, and I'll go through verse 17. This is God's inspired word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, that so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Pray with me. Our Father, open our hearts and our minds to understand and fully grasp what you would have us to do as sojourners in a land where we exercise citizenship to your glory. May it be so in my life and in the life of each one of us here and those who profess the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In his name, amen. In the New Testament, a Greek word, polites, is really transliterated from Greek into our language as 
politics. Now, I tell you that because there's also a word in the Hebrew. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm told that that word for citizen is similar to the pagan god Baal, B-A-A-L, anglicized. Most of us know that the nation of Israel was a theocracy, is a theocracy. It's ruled by priests and kings under the law of Moses. In the final verses of this text we've just read, we're told to honor the emperor as supreme, that is, the head of state. We don't have an emperor, we have a president. Other nations have chancellors and dictators and chairmen and whatever the designation may be. Paul instructs the Romans in chapter 13 to be subject to governing authorities, just like Peter does here. He says they are instituted by God. One translation says ordained by God. And then he adds in verse 7 of Romans 13, to pay taxes to whom taxes are owed. And we do that. We just got our tax bill yesterday. I think we'll pay it. Jesus even recognized that. If you remember, it was in Matthew that uh, he was asked about Caesar and taxes, and he reached into the mouth of a fish and pulled out the shekel and gave it to his disciples to pay their taxes. An important reality in the background is that God employed pagan nations to accomplish his will. Remember the name Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and yes, Caesar Augustus. And faithful Old Testament saints, Joseph, Daniel, served in civil governments even though they were in slavery with distinction for his glory. So how shall we as faithful followers of Christ regard our earthly government? Well, the scripture is clear. Sojourners and citizens. It's not either or, it's both. But of all the examples to study that question, Peter is important in the face of prison and threats to be killed for proclaiming salvation in Jesus Christ. Peter boldly proclaimed, we will obey God rather than man. That was after the resurrection. Before the resurrection, he was not so bold. He was rash, but not bold. I'd like to think about Jesus standing before Pilate. John records that when Pilate asked him, are you a king, he responded, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would stand and fight that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Remember, he taught Peter a practical lesson when he 
healed that ear. And if you look at 1 Peter 2.9 again, which we've already read, he said, you are a chosen race, a holy nation. And then in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He was speaking of the nation of God, the kingdom of God, which is not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. We are also sojourners in this earth, but citizens of an earthly nation. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, Peter wrote. If you remember, Paul asserted his citizenship of Rome on several occasions to gain recognition, to gain privilege, and even appealed to Caesar, which sent him to Rome where he met his death as a martyr. It's also true that Paul claimed the rights and privileges as a citizen of Israel the nation of God, his birth as a Jew, a member of the nation of Israel. And in his testimony before the council of elders and the chief priests in Jerusalem in Acts 23, this is what he told them. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now we're back to that word I mentioned at the beginning of this message, politics, because he used that Greek word, which has been transliterated, politics. I'd like you to turn to Philippians 3. Philippians 3 has some bearing on this subject. I want to start reading a few verses in chapter 3, and then we'll back up into chapters 1 and 2 for additional information. But keep your focus on this question. Are we citizens with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities? And at the same time, are we sojourners who pledge allegiance to an earthly kingdom? Philippians 3.3. 3. I'm going to continue through the first part of verse 8. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's a period, and we're going to stop right there. Those verses are what's relevant to this question. 
if you go back to chapter 1, you see in verse 27, only let your life, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Really? Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ is what he said in the original language. He was citing citizenship here. Let your conduct be worthy as you live as a citizen of any nation, of your nation, blameless and innocent, without blemish, as he says in chapter 2. Again, back to chapter 3, where we stopped mid-verse of, of verse 8. I'd like to pick up with the next sentence. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. We would say garbage. That's not used in polite society. We use rubbish. Can you imagine, he was saying, as a Jew, my, my heritage as a Jew is rubbish. My heritage as a citizen of Rome is rubbish. Would you say my heritage of being a citizen of the United States of America is rubbish? That's what Paul said. Compared to his citizenship in the kingdom of God. I count it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul lived faithfully as a citizen of the nation of Israel and as a citizen of the Roman Empire. His greatest claim, however, was a citizen of the commonwealth of heaven. And so he tells us, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Clearly, like Paul, we claim citizenship of this great nation. We live also as citizens of heavenly, lasting kingdom, adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is greater and more lasting than any commonwealth on earth. We have historical record from the earliest centuries of church tradition how to live for Christ in the reality of temporal and eternal citizenship. They're not alike. The ultimate question boils down to this. Is our perspective first on God, on eternal things, or on the world system, which is passing away? These things are difficult. Let me illustrate. Consider self-defense. To what extent will you go to protect yourself, your wife, your children, from violence 
What about service in the military? Is there a just war? What about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Does pacifism work? For those who can remember pre-World War II or have read the history of it, Neville Chamberlain claimed peace in our time. And then World War II broke out in all of its horror. Is there a time when we must take up arms? Well, those of us who love our country value freedom. And there's freedom in Christ of eternal perpetuity. Those who love the Savior are to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, Paul wrote in Titus. And that's essentially what he wrote when he said, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You cannot live that way unless you've confessed Jesus as Lord. And if you've never done that, I would plead with you this day to do it right now. Face the depth of your commitment as a believer in Jesus Christ. I did not read that verse at the end of Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him, that is Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. that by all means possible I may attain from the resurrection of the dead. Dare you or dare I really pray that prayer? Questions of this gravity force me to cry out to God for repentance, for faith, for wisdom, to die to Jesus. All of God's word lands us at the foot of the cross. And there I discover anew what it means to have the mind of Christ, to take on the form of a slave as he did. to become obedient to the point of death, to continually pray, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Think about the ramifications of that prayer. Now we have our culture and education, politics, family. It shapes us for good or evil. My own family's immigration to America predates the Revolutionary War. Two great-grandfathers, one sixth and one fifth, arrived on the same ship, the Friendship, in 1723. A historian of Anabaptist immigration patterns, that's what they were, wrote that they did not bear arms in the revolution, but 
they were loyal to the cause of the colonies. Both sets of my grandparents were plain-dressing Mennonite Anabaptist pacifists. They never voted. I asked them one day why they chose not to exercise their franchise. You know what they told me? We're told in Romans 13 that God ordained the leaders and we just don't want to vote against the person that will be elected because that's God's ordained leader. Their son, my uncle, served in the army in World War II. My own brother served in the Vietnam era. Nancy and I have a grandson who's a captain in the United States Army, a ranger, as one of your members here at Brant's is. We also have a grandson who is a police officer. And if you know anything about the non-resistance, which has always been, or I should say historically been, a characteristic of Anabaptist churches, they don't want to carry a gun, so they don't feel police work is legitimate. But I would make a distinction between patriotism and Christian nationalism. I read an online editorial in what is called the Christian Chronicle, which defined patriotism as a sense of pride in our heritage and gratitude for the freedoms we enjoy. It asserts, however, that Christian nationalism, that's a more recent term which is used to apply to our relationship to our own government, that it makes the preference of patriotism a demand of discipleship. The role of government as an avenger who carries out God's wrath and the wrongdoer of Romans 13 has to be seen in the context of chapter 12 of Romans where believers are called a living sacrifice and then to bless those who persecute you and repay no one evil for evil. Isn't that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? And overcome evil with good. Well, Solomon's wisdom was this. Solomon wrote Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. But Luke records this proverb from Jesus, spoken in the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6, 31. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now the kingdom of God is seen as this power under model that I referenced earlier. And as to that concept of an eye for an eye, I believe the government is the avenger, not the individual. That's, a, that's an address to the government to have balance to the punishment for the crime. And we still wrestle with that issue this very day.
Jesus also included among other admonishments, turn the other cheek. Have you ever seen a government turn the other cheek? Well, in the Christian life, there is a right now and there is a not yet. For instance, right now, we see by faith. Our inheritance in Christ is reserved for us in heaven, but not yet. Death is a reality right now in this life on earth. We do not yet live forever in our resurrected bodies. Paul wrote in Colossians 1, chapter, uh, verse 5, You have this faith and love because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. And again to the Romans, he said in chapter 8, if we see what we hope for there, that isn't hope. Who hopes for what they already see? Hope is what we do not yet possess in full. So try this mundane illustration. A professional colleague who became close to my family some years ago promised me that the classic car she inherited from her father would be mine when she died. That was a red 1957 Ford Thunderbird convertible. I really had the hope to get that car. But she died, and I don't have it. It remains a hope, an empty promise. Contrast that with all of God's promises. Scripture says they are yea and amen. Peter said the assurances of Jesus Christ were precious and great promises. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Charles Martin died. My father and mother died. Nancy's father and mother died. Her daughter died. The promise never die was in the context to live forever and ever. But it is not yet. We're bound to the earth. Death comes to all. Even though we die physically by God's grace, through faith, we are sealed. Right now, we are sealed with a promised Holy Spirit. The guarantee of our inheritance. Not like that 57 bird. But until we acquire possession of it, it's not yet. Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven right now. 
And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform this lowly body into be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to be subject to all things to himself. That is the not yet. Paul said, set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then, not yet, then you will also appear with him in glory. In many of my environments, as the people of God met, we might have heard an amen right there. Let's learn from history. Study the ancients. But I'll tell you, neither Constantine, nor Augustine, nor the Crusades, nor Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Alexander Mack, nor contemporary theologians see all the truth all the time. Ultimate truth is found in Jesus Christ and in his word. As that's why Paul declared, I de determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ. Christ and him crucified. You know, Jesus never chose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He never chose between the Greeks or Caesar. He was equally loving and stern. He was equally righteously angry and patient. He spoke the truth to all, and they crucified him on the cross. But defeated at the cross, Satan, who still roams this earth, he's the prince of the power of the air, has convinced human beings to shout with William Ernest Henley, I am the captain of my soul the master of my ship. You know what the title of that poem is? Invictus, which is the Latin term for unconquered. Well, let me tell you, the cry of the believer in Jesus Christ is, I surrender all. Conquer me, Lord. Take over my life. Our first allegiance is to Christ. By his word and his spirit, God will lead you how to understand and interact with the government, what you do, what you don't do. It matters not if it's a democratic republic, it's communism, a dictatorship, whether it's even a caliphate, or a monarchy, authoritarian of another type. 
He will guide you under the authority of his word and what he leads you to do. You may be led to run for elective office, as a friend of mine has done, served for 10 years. You might be called to serve in a civil position, like Matthew, the tax collector. You may vote, or you may choose to abstain from voting. I have to tell you that there's not one verse in the Bible that ever forbade service in the military or police force. Centurions were converted under Jesus Christ, under the apostles, and presumably they continued in their positions. No verse mandates that Agents of government who accept Christ must abandon their posts. Now I want to close with scripture because no preacher can amplify what God has said by his own personal eloquence or brilliance, and I have neither. God uses fishermen, plumbers, intellectuals, shepherds, people from every walk of life. Read the Old Testament prophets. Amos said, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but God called me. And this is the word of the Lord. So hear the words of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit as we close. Romans. 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? That's right now. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. If you smell good, you're going to convey the gospel. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do in word and deed, do all, everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, Father, Creator, Author of salvation, we worship you in the name of Jesus. We give glory to him. May we know the power of his resurrection 
share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. For those who hunger for righteousness, draw them by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, to repent, to confess Jesus and to be born again as a new creature for eternal life. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now before we sing, I'd like to say that in the event someone here this morning has actually accepted Jesus Christ that you've never done before, that you want to be born again, you want to be a member, a citizen of heaven, I would urge you to make that known. Now, you don't have to come forward. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to do anything. But I will tell you from my experiences that those who accept Christ want to tell somebody sometime. And before this congregation of believers would be the greatest moment that you could remember. As Eric remembered his baptism in 1955. And I remember when I accepted Jesus Christ at the age of five in York, Pennsylvania. I can picture the house, the street, and the place where I came to Christ. I pray you'll do that today. We're going to sing. If you'll stand, brother, lead us in I Surrender All. <laughs>